It is a joy to gather together this morning into the valley of grace. I had this entire passage of scripture illustrated for me this week. And, you know, we're, we're tempted to think that we're the only ones that go through difficulties in life or that, you know, you have the only mean-spirited, uh, tough-to-deal-with people in your life or perhaps the things that you are experiencing right now are the only things that are like that in the entire world. Um, but all of humanity uh, goes through the same basic dynamics of mountaintop experience, Valley of Grace. Those places to where we experience the goodness of the Lord, as we were just worshiping, I'm just like, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your blessings and your amazing work in our lives and all the things that you do. And at the same time, uh, you can five seconds later be thinking about, oh, well, I have this happening and that happening. I've got to talk to this person or, you know, go be involved in that situation. And so this morning, I want to remind you uh, that when you go through those valleys, that they are there for a purpose, that God's not simply being mean, He's not overly taxing us. His Word plainly declares that there is no temptation that is common to man, but such that in that temptation, that difficulty, that place, there is a way of escape, that the Lord indeed has a plan uh, for our, our valleys into which we travel. And so this morning, we'll pick up in verse 37 down to verse 51 as we continue traveling here with Jesus and the disciples. And would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for this precious time. Lord, these minutes that we get a chance to spend together studying your word. Lord, we pray that your word would speak for itself, that you'd take the, the instrument, the vessel, put me aside, speak to your people this morning. God, cause us to have ears that are eager to hear what the Spirit would say. Lord, anoint your word, cause it to bury itself deeply in our hearts, that we would have a deeper understanding and a greater love for you who loves us. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. And now it happened on the next day. And so, as we saw last time, the disciples have had a mountaintop experience. Amen? Uh, Jesus and the crew, they were on retreat. Now, you talk about a great guest teaching lineup at a retreat. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and God the Father. Okay? That's who they just heard from. <laughs> They're on the mountaintop. They, they've had this experience of being lifted momentarily for a short period of time into the heavenlies. They, they've received something from the Lord. They, they've gone and they've just been absolutely blessed. And can I say to you that it is Almost without exception, the moment you have one of those mountaintop experiences 
that you come down from the mountain, whether it's a real and literal mountain or whether it's a figurative mountain and you've just experienced some deep truths that God has shared with you personally in your life, when you come down from the mountain, you're going to find knuckleheads. You may even find yourself. You're going to find a need for the grace of God. You're going to find that place that that which you have learned on the mountaintop is going to be put to test. Because it's in the valley of grace that that real work of God gets done. I was privileged for 20 years to to kind of be the, the facilitator of mountaintop experiences for a lot of people. 500,000 or so of them. But I can also tell you that those mountaintop experiences will not sustain you. It is the grace of God that sustains. It is the mercy of God that keeps. It is the joy of the Lord that's our strength in everyday life that gets you through the day. And so the disciples, now coming down the mountain, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. You ever go away on vacation and wish you hadn't gone? Because you get back to a pile that is so overwhelmingly deep that it's just like, why did I even go? That's this experience. Because when the disciples got back, the problems that they had gone up to escape for a few moments were still there waiting for them. The things that were undone and unaccomplished, unattended to, still needed to have the touch of the Lord, and God was going to use them. And so I pray this morning as we look at this tremendous passage that you'll see these truths. You see, uh, it's really why Jesus came down from the mount but did not come down from the cross. Remember, he was asked. He said, if you are in fact, they were mocking Jesus as he hung on Calvary's cross, if you're the Son of God, bring yourself down from there. He came to die. He came to give his life a ransom for us, for many. And so the mountaintop led to another mountaintop, which led to the cross. Continuing onward now, and suddenly a man from a multitude cried out. There's a large crowd, and out of that crowd, out of that multitude, one voice is heard saying, Teacher, I employ, implore you to look on my son, for he is my only child. Have you gotten a little picture here in Luke's Gospel how many times that Jesus has ministered to the only child of someone. Can I venture a guess as to why that is? Because from his perspective, each one of us is his only child. He, he looks on us not as a multitude, but he sees us in need singularly. He knows of what you have need 100% of the time. He knows what I need. He knows when I need a good talking to. He knows when I need encouragement. He knows when I need healing. 
He, he knows when I'm broken and need to be mended. God knows. Christ knows. The Lord knows. And so each one of these times, notice how the Lord responds here. He's my only child. For behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. And so I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now you would think, having just arrived from a mountaintop experience with the Lord, that the disciples would be on their game. Amen? And yet, it is after that mountaintop experience that we find them inadequate and inept. Would you watch in your own life for that rebound effect of the mountaintop experiences? Because it is very often after that that the enemy is going to attack you. The enemy is going to come after you. He's going to see that you're lifted up, that God's done a great work in your life that you're now moving forward, that you've made that strong commitment. You are now going to step out into that new territory. You've actually said, Lord, if you want to send me somewhere, send me. Lord, for you, I'll give up every... I will follow you. Trust me, what will follow will be an attack from the enemy. It's going to come after you. Because as you grow, so the enemy wants to attack Because the last thing on this earth that the enemy wants is a bunch of believers living out their faith in a vibrant way. And if he can defeat you at that moment that you've had the mountaintop experience, as you descend into your valley of grace, maybe God's been at work in your marriage or perhaps in your family, maybe at work, some personal thing in your life to where God has been working and you get the message and you hear from the Lord and you're committing yourself, Lord, I've got to do better from here on out and I just really want to succeed. The same thing that befell you the week before will come in torrents and harder and stronger because the enemy seeks whom he may devour. He's going to try and make you forget the mountaintop. He's going to make you try and remember only the valleys. And He will put into your mind the very thoughts that God has sought to remove. And so here we find the disciples. They couldn't do a thing. They couldn't cast out this demon. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? When you read those words, it's like, man, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'd be crushed. I'd be bruised. But I want you to realize what I believe the Lord was getting at. He's going, guys, you can't do this in your own strength. You can't do this in your flesh. It's not going to happen but by faith that these things occur in your life. And you keep turning back to the flesh. And the reason I know that to be true is what's going to happen next in the next little vignette that's in this morning's passage. I'm very certain because of what happens next that the disciples thought this was a program. They thought this was a process. They thought that they simply had it nailed. Well, here's how you cast out a demon. 
And they probably got out their notes if they had such thing. You know, they pulled out a little parchment. Oh, when the demon gets here, first rebuke it. And say these words, thus says the Lord. Isn't it weird how we can turn relationship into just simple tradition? Stuff, things. The Lord wants to be alive in us and we reduce Him to some dead list somewhere. I believe that's what the disciples did and certainly what the multitude did. And you can kind of catch the little bit of sarcasm. Bring your son here. And as he was coming, to illustrate the point, notice what the enemy does. The demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and gave him back to his father. There are several things that we'll look at in a moment in this passage that I would like to give you, I believe, as little nuggets of truth. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Would you please underline that? And here's why. It's easy to be amazed at the majesty of God when He's working in other people. But are you amazed as you wait in faith for the Lord to work in you? The same God is always amazing. We serve a powerful God, an amazing God, a wonderful God. But isn't it interesting how we can forget that? I know I can. There are times when I know that God can do what's been asked and He's not doing it, and I'm like, Lord, what about me? What about us? And while everyone marveled at all the things that Jesus did, He said to His disciples, Listen up. Let these words sink down into your ears. This was a rural saying of the time. It's kind of like, you know, we used to say when I was younger, what, do you have wax in your ears? Do you having a tough time hearing? Something clogging up your hearing process? Let it sink down deep into your ears. Past your ears, in fact. Into your mind and let it get all the way to your heart. I don't just hear my words, because words by themselves, if they're not inspired, if they're not truth, don't do much. But this is the word of the Lord. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Kind of seems disassociated, doesn't it? You know why he says that, I believe? Because they're looking at a miraculous work that's happening right in front of them, and it would by no means be the great work that they would need to see. This was just another one of many demons that were cast out of many sick people who were healed, of many times that the Lord said, Look, my power is unlimited. Let me show you. But the greater thing would be the cross of Calvary. The greater thing, the greater mountain, not Mount Hermon, not the Mount of Transfiguration, but Mount Moriah. 
Golgotha. That's the greater thing. You see, it was easy for them to get hung up on the stuff that they were in tune with at the time. And what Jesus was saying was, guys, don't get hung up here, because you're going to see greater things than these. But they did not understand this saying. You know, that's an understatement, amen? We know because of how the disciples respond. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And in fact, interestingly enough, they were afraid to ask him about this. Because to them, it was nothing more than a saying at that time. Family of God, we can see the goodness of the Lord. We can see the power of the Lord. We can see the strength of the Lord and still not believe what God is doing. Still not understand it. We can witness miracles and still not get what God's doing. And I don't say that to shame anyone. I say that we need to be more perceptive. We need to be more in tune. We need to be more reliant upon the Lord. You see, because each one of us is going to get a valley of grace. The disciples here were kind of off on their own little tangent. And that is, in fact, why Jesus came down from the mount and, and did not come down from the cross. The cross was the goal. The cross was always the goal. The cross was the mission. The cross was where Jesus intended to go all along. It was not a second thought. It wasn't a third thought. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a Roman plot. It wasn't a Jewish plot. It was not people really mad at Jesus. The cross was planned from the beginning of time. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's your Jesus. He came with that purpose in mind. And so those mountaintop experiences, they're thrilling enough, but you're going to be tested to see whether that mountaintop experience is a living experience when you get back down to the Valley of Grace. Valley of Grace is filled with things that can seize you. Financial issues, marriage issues, personal issues, Family issues, friend issues, government issues, world issues. The fact that our hockey team didn't get a medal. I actually was talking to somebody, oh, can you believe it? I'm like, oh well. At the end of the day, probably not going to matter who's wearing a hunk of gold around their neck. But we can get seized by those things, Amen. We can get seized by a lot of things. And they convulse us and throw us down. All of a sudden you're not speaking the way you know you should speak. You're not acting the way you know you should act. You're not doing what you know you should do. You're not bearing the grace of God. We need to be the bearers of the grace of God. I need to be a bearer of the grace of God. The unmerited favor, the unmerited love of the God who created us. Have you ever thought about that? I mean deeply thought about it. That you are actually a vessel through whom the grace of God can flow. 
You're not the grace of God, but you are a vessel through whom it can flow. Other people can experience the grace of God by experiencing the grace of God in your life. You see, all of us have those things that grip us. It's our opportunity for us to see Jesus do what we cannot. And man, do I need that. I was teaching at a conference yesterday. Twice this week taught at conferences. And I was out in the courtyard after the conference and just fellowshipping and people were being so kind. And just, oh, it just really ministered to me. And, you know, all those things that people often say. And a guy comes up and he, he begins to I feel kind of dizzy. Now, I'd never met this guy before. He had no idea that I have previous training as an emergency medical technician. I feel dizzy. I said, well, why don't you just sit down? Let's talk a little bit. And all these people who were, oh, it was so great. They're all one by one peeling off. And here I'm stuck with the guy who's about to have a stroke. And here's what I did. I left him with somebody else. I went back to my car and God busted me. And I got back to my car and God said, you turn yourself around and go back down there. But Lord, I don't want to get involved. And then came the ambulances. He survived. But the Lord had a change. The Lord had an opportunity for me to be used. I didn't want to do that part of grace. I wanted the other part of grace where I was getting lifted up and blessed. And Let me hear... What was that? Could you just say that again? It was really good. And I'm sharing with you that just like the disciples, sometimes you descend into the valley of grace and you're like, oh man, I need to learn this lesson again. I'm not hearing the way I ought to hear. Listen to the voice of the Lord in the valley of, the valley of grace. Because you may miss a divine appointment. You may miss an opportunity to be used of the Lord. And here the disciples had come back down to this beautiful place called Caesarea Philippi. They're on their way back to Capernaum and then they'll be moving further south from there. You see, the power of the Lord was sufficient for all the disease and all the death that could be thrown his way. The problem was is the disciples wanted to be used selectively as they saw fit. Can I remind you that nowhere in Scripture is that principle taught? And in fact, we don't get to pick, we don't get to choose. Spiritual attacks do not come on our time. Amen? The enemy is seeking to do his work, and the Lord says, but for you, Jeff, you just be faithful. You just be available. You be ready in season and out to give an account of the hope that lies within you to anyone who asks. And whenever that is, I will determine, says the Lord. And so the disciples 
not quite in that place. You see, the Lord's heart was broken. But nevertheless, His grace is going to triumph. Never underestimate the power of God's grace to overcome your weaknesses or your faults. And I, I am, there are a few things that I'm more thankful for than others, and this is one of them. That in spite of me being who I am, me being the way I am, and you can probably echo these things as well, that God can still accomplish great things through us as we submit to the power of His Spirit in our lives. Because it's Him that does the work. It's His grace that works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. Amen? That's why His grace is sufficient. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? My grace is sufficient for you. You know what the question was before that as he spoke to the church at Corinth? Paul asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? If the Apostle Paul was not sufficient to be a vessel of God in his own flesh, I can pretty much guarantee you I'm not. And I would rather think you're not. We need the grace that's going to meet us in that valley. No matter how deep, no matter how wide, we need the grace that God will meet us with in the valley. And so he says to them, look, it's just another demon-possessed child. (laughs) It's that simple for him. For you and I, we look at it like the world is ending. Amen? And, and I do not want to belittle anyone's issues or problems, because to us, those things are monumental, amen? But can I remind you, they're not monumental to the Lord. God does not see your problems and go, wow, that one's really tough. You know, whoa, I didn't know that your husband was like that, or your wife said those, or you're, you're finding it. How did you get there? I mean, your job, you've been there all this time, and you're, wow. It doesn't happen to God. He's not going to go, oh, man, well, I was okay until that. I mean, really, I mean, you're kind of testing me here. Not at all. God is waiting for us to surrender to faith and allow grace to work in our lives. Because we can't handle it. Because it is too big. Because it's completely out of our control. The only answer is Him. And that is exactly the way He wants it. Dependence. We use the term bankruptcy in our English language. It means to be devoid of sufficient means to take care of one's debt. Anybody here bankrupt? You, you may not be physically bankrupt. Maybe you can pay your bills. I guarantee you when you get to heaven, it won't be because you paid your own bills. You're bankrupt. I guarantee you the faith and the grace that sustains you won't be your own. It'll be His. You were bankrupt. And when we recognize that as we go through life, then we simply are able to rest and trust in His sufficiency. He's able to rebuke any demon any disease, or any dire strait in your life. Leave Him in that place. We have a tendency to kind of think that we've arrived, and and we get to those places at times where it's just, well, I learned that lesson already. Can I tell you the lessons I've already learned are the ones that I usually end up learning again? It's just the way I think God works in our lives. And here's why, I think. 
because we're kind of knuckleheads at times. Amen? We kind of start resting and trusting in the fact, hey, the manna pots were full yesterday. I'll just go out and get some more. And so God allows us to go through something that's oftentimes very similar. Amen? I, I don't know how many times I've learned the lessons. The one that I hate, I loathe, I despise the lesson of patience. I hate patience. I hate patience so bad I want to kill patience. And I'm just sharing. That's just the way I'm wired that way. I'm just like, okay, this is that, and that is this, and this is this, and so okay, we're over here. It takes patience to realize that I'm still bankrupt. And I need to rest and trust in the Lord and His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and His power and the faith to believe that those things are so. And so very often, the reason that I have to learn the patience lesson over and over and over again is because I stop resting in who He is and I start resting in who maybe I am or you are or we are. Or maybe your family is. We need to rest and trust in the Lord and His power. And so now we move on to the second little section here, a very discerning Savior. And I, I, I love this passage of Scripture for this reason. God sees right through us. God sees right through us. He's not amazed at our articulate arguments that we give to each other. He's not stunned by the fact that we can rationalize so many things. That we can put together such a convincing argument for our particular stance on why we are where we are or believe what we believe. He's just sitting there going, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. And then a dispute, verse 46 says, arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Now think of this in context. They've just come from this retreat with Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and Father God. Okay? Well, you know, I had lunch with Greg Laurie. Well, I had dinner with Pastor Chuck. Well, I got to sit next to Billy Graham on a plane. I, you know, you can kind of see what I'm getting at here. It's like, well, I was there at this, and I received all, and and he told me a personal secret. I got all these things, and I took it in, and you can kind of see the disciples, especially Peter, James, and John, as they come back down. We are bad to the bone. Special. The anointing is on them. You know, they think they're the the real power behind the twelve, you know. It's like I was closer. He actually handed me a piece of bread. You know, you can kind of see it. And then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And they use the past tense here, speaking of the future, and here's why. They know something's going on. They know they're headed south. They know they're headed towards Jerusalem. That's where you would crown a king, amen? That's where you would go if you were going to take over and start a new kingdom. So they're thinking, hey, he's going to ask me to be the vice messiah. 
I'm going to be the secretary of Messiahdom. You know, you can see it. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to be at your left hand? And here's why I said what I said. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their, oh, I hate this, their hearts, because it's still deceitfully wicked, it's desperate, amen, who can know it? Ill-motivated at times, even when speaking with flowery Christianese. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord, brother. And the whole time, you rotten dog. But you're using Christian speak. You're using words that seemingly, oh, Lord, let us be great in your kingdom, you know, because we want to serve you, God. And he's going, no, you guys just want power. God sees right through us. He's not confused about our motivations. Sometimes we are, but he's not. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. Jesus grabs a child. And I love this. It's like, okay, we need to illustrate this point. Whenever Jesus starts using children, you know they're going backwards. Amen? It's like they were here, and now they need to go back here because they have not got a clue. Okay, and, and here's how we do this. You ever noticed when you're trying to illustrate a point to your children and they're not getting it, you kind of talk in that, in that language of child, well, let me reduce this to its lowest common denominator, okay? What don't you get it? We're going to make this so much simpler that a little child could understand it. That's what Jesus is doing to the disciples. Look, you guys are not getting this, so look, check out the kid. And he said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. He said, it's not hard. It's not complex. It's not difficult. And he receives me who sent me. You want to receive my father? Let's make this childlike. For he who is least among you, You see, children had no rights in that day and time. Until you were 12 years old, as a male child, you basically were a persona non grata. You were a field slave laborer, basically in your own house. And then you began to learn the things of the Lord. You kind of took up a little different position in society. But this child is beneath that age, so he's saying, Look, a slave among you is greater than you guys. A child is greater than you. You're arguing over who's going to be great in the kingdom, and I'm telling you, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my kingdom. And making my kingdom come, and my will be known and done. And now, John, I love this deflection. You ever get people who do this to you? They completely deflect the actual argument by taking up some new thing that seems important. Whenever you do counseling with people, you're going to see this tactic. It's like it hits home and so quickly change the subject. Okay, we'll go over here, not over here. And now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone not following the directions. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not 
follow with us. This, Jesus says, here's the child. Oh, and by the way, you guys are acting like them. They're not following the rules. Jesus, you made rules about casting out demons. Did Jesus make rules about casting out demons? wasn't even true, was it? It's not true at all. Jesus never sat him down and said, Okay, step one, write this down. Identify the demon type. Well, it's, it's a bad one. Check out the severity of the demonic activity. So, can you tell me, how do you feel about this demon? How are you feeling right now about your demonic possession? Could you explain this to me? He didn't do any such thing. He rebuked the demon and they fled. That's all he did. And he said, you guys go and do likewise. So this person, whomever it was, wasn't actually wrong. But from the disciples' position, well, they're, they're getting in on our territory. You know, I mean, we have exclusive right in this particular region to cast out demons because we are the disciples. We forbade him because he's not, he's not one of us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. All right, so he said the prayer first and then cast out the demon. You said, You cast out the demon, then pray. Who cares? Who cares? Is he for us or against us? He's for us. It's okay. He looks a little different. He wears a robe. Goes to church in a robe. Wears a suit to church. Oh, surely he can't be saved. Lord, he's wearing a suit and a tie. Isn't that weird how we, we do those things? We get completely sectarian about things that don't matter to the kingdom. And bear in mind, I am not saying that there aren't absolute doctrines that must be correct. The Mormon doctrine of salvation makes them unchristian, okay? Period. End of conversation. Same thing is true for the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are a lot of people with whom we might disagree on some basic ways that church functions. It is an abomination to God to divide over those things. Because we're supposed to be known by how we love each other. And when we don't love each other, we go around pointing out things that don't matter to God. It gets very, very, very hurtful to the kingdom. And so he says, And now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And so this little display of flesh is followed by the Lord just saying, Look, guys, compared to what's coming, your, your little arguments are pretty much meaningless. Nobody's going to get into the kingdom or be kept out of the kingdom because of those little minor details about which we specifically don't feel that we have agreement on. I love my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. 
Some people think that we're Pentecostal. Some people think we're Baptists. This Calvary Chapel, amen? I'll never forget it. The first time I found out about Calvary Chapel, my pastor actually said, don't go there. Don't go to anything. We're doing the Maranatha concerts. Don't go to them. They use electric guitars. There's no organ involved. And I thought to myself, well, that's good. But don't go. It's exactly what Jesus was getting at. You know, some people praise the Lord. We happen to have a wonderful, pretty, upbeat worship team. Some people get really close to the Lord. I don't know how, but with an organ. If that's you, praise God. If you're into that type of worship, praise the Lord. It's not something that we need to be pointing out faults, and I certainly am not. I'm doing exactly the opposite. I'm saying, that's what befell the disciples. They're all worried about how it was getting done instead of what was getting done. Amen? We need to be concerned about what's getting done. Are you preaching Christ and Him crucified for the remission of sin? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the only way, truth, and life, and no one gets to the Father but by Him? When we agree on those things, then the rest of it frankly doesn't matter. Do you think the world is billions of years old? You're not getting into heaven. You're not going to be kept out of heaven because you got the number wrong, okay? It will be because Jesus Christ is Lord. Period. Period. There is no other thing. Demons were going to get cast out at the name of Jesus and by the power of God. And if you waved your hand this way or waved your hand that way or you prayed before, you prayed after, you anointed with oil or didn't, it didn't matter. It was at the name of Jesus those things occurred. He rebuked them. He spoke to them. And so he ends and will end this morning with this one fact. We have now traveled with Luke, Dr. Luke, all the way from the temptation to the transfiguration. We are now going to be heading from this time forth to Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, look, this is what I came for. I didn't come for all these theological arguments. I came to offer my life a ransom for many. And he actually, I believe, is really quoting uh, in, a, in a way from what the prophet Isaiah had said 700 years earlier in, in Isaiah chapter 50. And it says there, verse 6, For I gave my back to those who struck me. What does it say? It says, I gave my back. It doesn't say, they arrested me and falsely accused me and they were overwhelmingly powerful, and because I couldn't escape the Romans, who were, in, who were made to do what they did by the Jewish religious leadership, and my knucklehead disciples who abandoned me, wouldn't even pray with me in the garden, it doesn't say that Jesus was overcome. It says He gave. He wasn't overpowered. That's why it was such an anathema to Jesus when Peter takes out his sword and lops off the heights priest's servant's ear, Malchus. Amen? He says, look, I came here for this reason. Don't blow it now. And my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting, for the Lord my God will help me, and therefore I will not be disgraced. Notice what it says. For I have set my face like flint, 
and I know that I will not be ashamed. And this is a picture, if you know anything about about flint and or obsidian, uh, it can be razor sharp, so much so that with the case of obsidian, people still to this day in certain countries use it for surgery. It is razor sharp, and you are on one side of the edge or the other side of the edge, and you can't be in the middle. He set the edge of his person to go to Jerusalem. It's what he came for. And so as Jesus uh, heads toward Jerusalem, the Romans had a saying, and it was actually derived from Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon River in the north of Italy in B.C., B.C.E., whichever you prefer, 49, there's a small river that's in the northern portion uh, of Italy, and when he got to it, he was given the proconsulship, or basically the governor or rulership, of what we know as most of modern-day Europe. And he was extremely successful as a ruler in what we know as modern-day Europe. And when he came back, the Roman Senate had pronounced a law that no one who was a leader in Rome's government could cross the Rubicon River with a standing army because it was perceived to be a threat to Rome itself. Julius Caesar on the north side of the Rubicon made a decision to cross that river and to take control, ultimately, of Rome. But the moment he stepped across that river, he declared his intentions. I'm going to Rome. I'll settle for nothing less than being Caesar. Jesus just crossed the Rubicon. He says, you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem. Now what happened in Caesar's time was there was, of course, a bloody civil war. And it took hundreds of thousands of lives ultimately. For Jesus, it would cost him his own life. He declared his intentions. He said, for this reason and this reason alone, I've come to offer my life a ransom for many. I will die in their place. And so as Jesus now begins to head south through Galilee and Samaria, through Decapolis, he's going to come across the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, the zealots, the Herodians. Everyone will be against him. So as he descended into the Valley of Grace, we saw a man on a mission. A Savior who came to save. Amen? Jesus is the source of that grace for the valley. If it was sufficient for him and all that he did, then surely it's sufficient for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you've shown me. Lord, for the unending love, the tender care. Lord, the dedication to my life that you've shown. Lord, when others would forsake us, when others would shelve us, Lord, when others look down upon us, Lord, you're the one that lifts up. You're the one that raises up. You're the one that empowers. Indeed, as Paul said, your grace is sufficient. We thank you.
Lord, that your grace is sufficient for us. Help us when we're in the valley to cling to your grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.